Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast. We normally spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha, but this week there will be no Parshat Shavua because we have the pleasure of celebrating the holiday of Pesach. Before I get into what the topic of our mini-session will be today, I just wanted to give a shout-out to the summer program at Matan. The summer program will be beginning on June 29th and will be continuing through July 20th. The topic this year is the Jewish emotional experience. There's really a star-studded lineup with tremendous lecturers and teachers that will be speaking throughout this experience. All classes will be available in live and on Zoom. There's a combination of Hebrew and English, and check out matan.org.il for more details. It's bound to be a wonderful experience, and for those who will be there uh, in person, I'll be thrilled to see you and speak more. Today I wanted to speak very briefly about the book of Shira Shirim. Uh, it's really one of my favorite books in all of Tanakh, and in honor of Pesach, in, in which we read Shira Shirim, I wanted to take a short look at some general ideas that are significant to understanding and appreciating the book of Shira Shirim. I'll start off just by saying that there are two ways of looking at the book. You can look at it as a series of unrelated love poems, which we'll speak in a moment about their content, but that they're unrelated. They are just Collated in Shir Shirim is sort of like an anthology of Shir Hashirim, the greatest poems written by Shlomo HaMelech. And that's one way of looking at it. The other way is looking at it as a collection of poems, which is undeniable, but that they are interrelated with one another. Uh, and there are themes that repeat and there are figures that appear in multiple poems. Um, but that if you look at it, and this is sort of Professor Elias Cease has a book that goes in this direction, as does Harav Yuval Sherlow, that these are poems that interrelate and that if you read the whole anthology, that you can notice that there's some movement, there's some development. It will be a little bit hubristic to call it a plot, but that there are there are developments that take place, and the couple that you meet in the opening poem is not the couple you meet at the end. Uh, and those are sort of two general interpretive approaches to the book of Shir Shirim, uh, which are significant for anybody who's looking to, to study the book to understand them. Am I looking for a relationship between the different poems, or do I let it just continue on? And it's very important when someone reads Shir Shirim, not just hearing it in shul, but that you have a text in front of you that divides it into poems. It's really, it's just not a clear text unless you have that division in front of you. It sort of all just flows into one when you're speaking really about a, a significant number of different poems that are put into one work. As many of us know, Shir Shirim is a tremendous oddity in Tanakh, and it presents a number of significant challenges. First of all, God doesn't appear in the book, uh, which we know is also common with the book of Esir. Perhaps more complicated than that is that its content is extremely erotic, from hinted content to open description of body parts that are otherwise not really spoken about openly in other books of Tanakh. In the Sukim themselves, there is no religious undertone in the book. Uh, the Psukim don't suggest that at all. It really just seems like love poems that are shared between a male and a female lover who are, seem to be at the very beginning stages of their relationship. It's not a religious book. And there's also, I would say, tremendous emphasis on physical beauty. It's not just about emphasizing body parts, that that itself presents its own perhaps modesty question surrounding the book, but that the love seems to be really, really based on a physical attraction to one another. There isn't any real clear discussion of personality or other aspects of of the love that the two share with each other. 
And so for all these reasons, Shira Shirim is, is a challenge when it comes to how we understand its place and its significance in Tanakh. Of course, most of us are familiar with the idea that, well, Chazal only brought it in. They only accepted it. And there was debate regarding whether they would accept Shira Shirim along with Shlomo's other books as well because they reinterpreted the book because they explained that this is really a metaphor. We can't accept Shira Shirim at its face value. It simply is not acceptable. Um, and, and therefore they offer a radical reinterpretation of Shira Shirim and that it's a love story between the Jewish people and God. Now, most of us take this for granted because we've grown up with this concept, but it doesn't happen in any other book of Tanakh where we take it and say, oh, that's interesting. Nope, I'm going to understand it completely, completely differently. We, we don't do that anywhere else. And so I think, A, we should appreciate the radical reinterpretation that Chazal do here. And of course, we understand it's because Tanakh is a theological work. Uh, Tanakh is not meant to simply explore physical human experiences. It's meant to explore, if it does explore those experiences, vis-a-vis someone's relationship with God. And the only way that Shirashim could have a place at all in Tanakh is if it has theological value. As I mentioned earlier, there are debates that are reflected in a number of different sources, in the Mishnah Mesechet Yedayim, and also in Avotri Rabbi Natan, a post-Tanaitic uh, Midrashic work, where, where they speak about this question of, is, is it a holy book at all? And there's different ways to express that. But but all of this represents the tremendous difficulty that that was had. And we also know that Shira Shirim, like it's often used today as well, was used as just love poems that would be spoken about. And Rabbi Akiva warned even in the Tosefta in Sanhedrin, uh, Yudbet, uh, it says that Rabbi Akiva would say that anybody who sings these songs in a frivolous setting, in a Beit HaMishteh, and just, you know, just sings them as if they're love songs, and Lochelik Lolam Haba, which is a very strong sentence that he has no place in the world to come. But the, again, the idea being is that once they had been canonized and put into Tanakh, that it should be very clear to all that these are only meant to be used for, as religious metaphors and not for anything else. I'll mention one other aspect regarding the metaphor, which is that there are a number of different metaphors that are actually offered. Men, those who are familiar with the metaphor are familiar with the metaphor that Rashi uses in other and Midrash Rabbah, which is that uh, God is the Dod and, and Am Yisrael is the, is the female character. Uh, and that's manifest in, in a number of different Midrashim. Uh, Kabbalistic perspectives in the book of Shirishim look at it the opposite. Um, because the Shekhinah, which is one of the forms of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's the female form, uh, and therefore they look at the Re'aya, the female uh, protagonist of Shir Shirim, as God, and the male as Am Yisrael. Other philosophical interpretations uh, look at it as a conversation between one's intellect and their spirit, uh, or one's cognitive self and their spirit self. They're all different versions of this metaphor that have sort of circulated throughout the centuries. But but it's all based on this same idea, which is that Shir Shirim only has a place in Tanakh, if we look at it metaphorically. What I wanted to bring to our attention is that Chazal's reinterpretation may not be as radical as I first described it to be, because Tanakh in so many places describes a relationship with God through the language 
of a romantic relationship. Words like ahav, chashak, davak, to cleave, yada, which literally means to know, but in multiple places in Tanakh refers to a sexual relationship. Kana, to be jealous, that God is jealous of us or jealous of the other gods we have been worshiping. And also the word baal, which also means both spouse or husband, but it also is another phrase for the Canaanite gods. And there are all these words that are used. Now, again, it's used because we're limited as humans and how, how we can describe relationship with God. How can we describe something that doesn't have clear form? So we describe it through the prism or the Torah describes it through the prism of a relationship that we are familiar with. But all these words that, you know, connote tremendous closeness are used all over. I'll just take the example for, for example, of a negative one of zana, which literally means to harlot or prostitute. That is the phrase that is used over and over again when God speaks about how we behave when we worship other gods. When we worship other gods, it is no less than betraying our spouse, which is God. So that, that's one that comes up all, all over and say for Shemot and say for Dvarim, where we have this idea that our relationship with God should be likened to our romantic relationships. And I don't think we have to look too far to understand the shared foundations of these two kinds of love. They both necessitate tremendous trust, and perhaps we'll use the word emunah when we speak about God. They necessitate dedication and sacrifice. And these are two relationships that to sustain them, we will always end up going through multiple stages in those relationships. There might be the infatuation stage or what in the world of, of God we might call sort of the chazarabachuva. And then there will be sort of a, a fall at some point afterwards or what in modern psychology we call the post infatuation stage, uh, that there is this element of feeling it's so clear everything seems so right my life feels fully aligned with Torah or I understand that I can't even get there and then we have other stages of life where things are much more difficult and we know of course as well that in a love relationship these stages are also present couples who find themselves very disillusioned it's very often that happens at after the infatuation stage comes to a close and no one ever let them know that that kind of can't eat can't sleep can't breathe can't focus is not something that's necessarily meant to last forever and so these are both relationships that require tremendous dedication and work to keep them sustained while ultimately a life of Torah and please God also a life of a healthy dynamic love relationship are things that sustain us that are sources of strength for us and that persist over a lifetime and ultimately create a broader picture but that we have to stick it out in those moments or stages that things are more difficult in order to get there. I want to just briefly mention some connections between Shir Shirim and Pesach. And it really connects directly to what I just explained about sort of these different stages of love. In the second chapter of Shir Shirim, we have a beautiful poem wherein the Dode calls upon the Re'aya to mimic the spring. I'll just read a few psukim 
קומי לך רעייתי יפתי ולכי לך, go out for you, get up for you, כי הנה הסתיו עבר והגשם חלף הלך לו. Right, the winter, the winter months have gone and the rain is no longer. הניצנים נראו בארץ, עת הזמיר הגיע וכל התור נשמע בארצנו. We have the buds, everything is blossoming and the, and the springtime birds are coming out. התאנה חנתה פגיה והגפנים סמדר נתנו ריח. We have all the summer fruits beginning, we have the earliest buds of the, of the תאנה, of the fig tree, and we have also the gift. and the grapes. We have all the beginning kernels of the growth and he really urges the woman to mimic the spring and that she should come out and blossom and come and be with him. This poem, among others, but really is the poem that is most derived in parallel to the holiday of Pesach. And one can look deeper in Rashi's commentary, has a number of them and other Midrashim, but where the Midrash speaks about the fact that this moment is describing the moment that God decides to redeem Am Yisrael. And it finds parallels to Moshe and Aaron in some of the fruits that are mentioned. And we have here this moment where God says, this is your moment. You are going to now leave Egypt. And he's encouraging us to wake up from our disinterest, from our slumber after all these years of slavery. And he wants us to get up and to go out. And one of the Midrashim works off of Pasuk Tet, again in the second chapter of Shir Shirim, which says... הנה זה עומד אחר כותלנו, משגיח מן החלונות ומציץ מן החרקים. That says that the dode, where is he right now? And it's again, it's a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet scene, that he is waiting behind the wall and he's looking through the cracks. Right? He's looking to try and get a glimpse of the raya because he's yearning to see her. And the Midrash takes this pasuk and parallels it to a pasuk we have in Shemot Peregimel, פסוק זין, it says, ויאמר אדוני ראו ראיתי את עוני עמי אשר במצרים ואת צעקתם שמעתי מפני נוגסיו כי ידעתי את מכאוביו. Where God sort of says, no, I, I hear it now. And we sort of ask ourselves, well, why did God now all of a sudden hear what they were, what they were crying about? But obviously something had changed in their plight and in their desperation. And the Midrash parallels it to this פסוק from שיר השירים. It parallels it to this idea of the dod sort of peeking out from behind the wall and in between the cracks where he's trying to get a glimpse at the re'ayah. And this is in that poem that we just mentioned before about the springtime. It's the beginning of it where it says, That there is the dod who's standing behind the wall and he's, he's mashkiach, which literally just means to looking through the chalonot, but it, the Midrash interprets it in a much deeper sense and he's looking through the cracks. And the Midrash says that, you know, we, had, we were so sad, we were so desperate, we thought that God wouldn't see us. But then, in that pasuk we read in Sefer Shemot, that he tells, well, now I've seen, I've seen their pain. He was looking out from behind the windows of Shemaim, and it combines the image of the wall and the windows in Shir Shirim with God sort of coming out, so to speak, from the sky and declaring that he now sees our suffering. And it's a beautiful image, and it's an image that was taken up In the Yishai Rebo song, which you'll hear a clip played for in a little bit, I'll just say that Yishai Rebo is the king of using uh, Shira Shirim in his music. Uh, God Elbaz is also pretty good at it, but Yishai Rebo, I sort of feel like wherever he can stick in a quote from Shira Shirim, he does. And in his song, Mashkiach Mina Chalonot, which is, again, the phrase from the 
from Shira Shirim, but it's also quoted in the Midrash. So Yishai Rebo really takes those two ideas from the Midrash and explores them in this song. And in the, in the chorus, he says, Mashkiach min achalonot, magshim et kol achalomot, vegam kshehu mastir panim, odo metzit min acharakim. And he says in a verse that is supposed to reflect deep belief and trust in God, that God looks out from the windows and that he realizes all of our dreams. There are a play on words and a rhyme between chalonot and chalomot of windows and dreams. And even when he hides his face, or there are moments of difficulty where we don't feel God as clearly, he is still peeking out from behind the cracks, meaning God is still there. Even if we don't feel him, he hasn't pushed away the clouds and made himself known, but he's still there and he still is watching and waiting for the moment when it will be the right time to come back. Now to bring this mini episode to a close, I'll just say that Pesach really is the infatuation stage. Uh, in the infatuation stage where, again, modern science has shown that we have sort of a robust cocktail of hormones that helps us do the impossible to commit to somebody else to actually have a child, which is the evolutionary biologist perspective on all this, that that burst of hormone of can't eat, can't sleep, can't think is there to get us to do something really that is is challenging and to a certain degree irrational. And in that moment where we are able to do the irrational and commit to another person, that same idea, I believe, is supposed to be brought in to our relationship with God. Pesach and Shira Shirim as a sort of flagship expression is the infatuation stage. It's the time where we're supposed to do the highly irrational and follow God into the desert. That is, often we look at the metaphor of a parent and child, and it's as if we were children in the desert and we were sort of nursing from our mother, specifically with the man and the water. But another metaphor that is no less powerful in this setting is the metaphor of a love relationship, that us going into the desert was us doing the irrational and following God because we were sort of lovesick. Now, there's a lot of uh, disillusionment and challenge that meets us in that time period, but it's because it comes after that initial infatuation, that moment of a complete high where we'll go anywhere and do anything and follow this lover into the distance. And just like in a real love relationship, when this relationship is worked on and the terms of engagement and the roles are more clearly identified, uh, that is something that will enable the relationship to persist. It will be something much more deep, something more real, and a longer-lasting relationship that will have been formed. So let's fall in love this Pesach. Jump right in. We'll have plenty of time for harder looks and critical thinking during the seven weeks of the Omer. Chag Sameach. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. 
Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.